We're in the book of Romans this morning, chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. All right, we're in Romans chapter 7. If you've already had your copy of Scripture, turn there. Pat read for us the last part of the section of Scripture we'll be looking at. The Scripture we'll be looking at this morning is Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. Romans 7, 13 through 25. And I need to introduce this passage with uh, a quick summary of something. There's two things we can consider about this passage, and I need to... uh, tell you this. First of all, he could be talking about someone who is not yet saved, or in this passage, he could be talking about somebody who is saved. We'll get there. You'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. Or you can be reading it now while I yammer on. Is he talking about the Apostle Paul before he got saved, or is he talking about himself after he got saved? I'm going to give you three reasons why I believe he's talking about his experience as a Christian. The experience of the Christian life in the life of the Apostle Paul. First reason is the passage is in the present tense. If he was talking about his past, he would have put it in what tense? Let me think. Past tense. Okay, yes. Now, you might suggest, well, sometimes we talk about it in the past and the present tense when we're sort of being hypothetical. That might be the case, but Paul never does that anywhere else in the Scripture. And so this would be a very unique kind of thing. And so my suggestion is he's talking about using the present tense because he's talking about his present experience. Uh, Second reason is in verse 22, if you have your copy of Scripture open, he says... For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. If you know anything about how the Holy Spirit uses the Apostle Paul to teach about the human condition prior to conversion, he would never say that a person dead in their sin could delight in the law. The delight in God's things comes from the powerful work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us, and then we're able to recognize the truth of God's word and put our faith in Christ for salvation. So that would be something very contrary to Paul for him to say, oh yeah, before I was a Christian, I delighted in the law. He would argue elsewhere in scripture, well, no, prior to Christ, I wouldn't delight in the law. Last reason. Paul does talk a little about about his life before he was saved, especially over in the book of Philippians. And what kinds of ways does he describe his life before he was saved? Awesome. Awesome religion man. Pharisee of Pharisee, Hebrew of Hebrews. He he didn't describe his life before the law as a great struggle with sin because he really did a good job of minding his P's and Q's. And so for all of these reasons, there there are many, many more, but for these three primary reasons, I'm going to approach this passage considering that it is written by someone describing what the life of walking with Jesus is like and it might do a good job informing us of what our life in Christ uh, might be like. Here's the title of the message. Why being good doesn't always feel good. Why being good doesn't always feel good. We want being good to feel good. We feel good when we are generous to somebody and we buy them coffee or we buy them a meal. We feel good when we donate to a charity and they're doing something that we feel is very important. We feel good when we give our time of ourselves to help somebody out and we're able to help somebody out and that makes us 
uh, feel good. And so what we might be lulled into thinking is, well, that means a good person, when they're doing good, will always feel good. And the Bible tells us no. And we need to understand why doesn't, uh, why being good doesn't always feel good. Let's look at verses 13 to 20, and here's what we want to think about. Being good doesn't always feel good because we're confused over what's good. We're confused over what's good. Look at verse 15 of Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Behavioral scientists have described this in detail for years. And here's how it comes down. You're sitting at home. It's a Sunday night. You've got a long week ahead of you. You decide to get up and go into the kitchen. And there is a pan of brownies on the kitchen counter. You now are confronted with a choice. Actually, you're confronted with a number of choices. First choice, do I eat a brownie? Second choice, do I eat only one brownie? Do I eat only one brownie or do I eat multiple brownies and also add ice cream and Hershey syrup? These are all choices you will be confronted with soon after this thinking over. The one choice that has long disappeared from view is what is this brownie ice cream giant bowl? The best way to do that is in a salad bowl if you're real. How, I don't have a bowl to do this. Get a salad bowl out. Pro tip, you're welcome. Some of you aren't going to hear anything for the rest of the day. Ice cream and salad bowl, done. You know, we're not thinking about how we're going to sleep that night as we lay down in the bed go, oh, what do we say? That was dumb. And then at 1 o'clock in the morning, when we have yet to fall asleep, well, that was really dumb. And then we wake up in the morning and we're blaming the person who made the brownies. They shouldn't have made it. They should have known I can't say no. So we understand this. When we're making that decision, we're not fighting with ourselves and somebody next to us. There's not a brownie dealer standing in our kitchen trying to convince us and we're standing there no not even once and no we're arguing with ourselves on the one hand there's something in us that says no you know i shouldn't have a brownie at night i shouldn't have I, there's something in us that wants to say no to it but there is something else in us that wants to eat not one brownie not two brownies the whole pan of brownies and then blame the fact that they're gone on one of the children another pro tip you've got to be writing these down what is going on? We're used to this. It is, it is a conflict within us. And the Bible is describing our wrestle with sin in these same terms. When we're wrestling with sin, it's not super religion man versus outside sin man. The, the wrestling with being good, as I've termed it here, is a wrestle with ourselves. We don't understand our actions. We want, on the one hand, as believers, to do things God's ways. There's something in us by the power of Spirit that says, no, I want to do things God's ways. But there's also something in us that says, no, I want this. And, I, and, I, and it drives me crazy that we're divided, is how Paul is describing this. So let's look at these first few verses where uh, good doesn't always feel good because we're confused over what's good. Let's read verses 13 and 14. Did that which is good bring death to me? He's talking about the law. By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be showed to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond all measure. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So what we have to recognize as believers is we're not in heaven yet. 
When you got saved, you weren't raised from the dead. Have you noticed? After you have got, you got saved, believers, think about it this way. Remember back to when you got saved. Have you ever gotten sick since that day? Have you ever suffered an injury since that day? Have you ever done something to the best of your ability and had it not work out since that day? If, if you answer yes to any of those questions, then you are not raised from the dead. If you're still not convinced, ask somebody you know, they will tell you, no, you're not raised from the dead. And what we need to understand is because we're not raised from the dead yet, there remains in us sin that has not yet been dealt with. Are we righteous in Christ? And yes, we are. Are we as righteous as Christ is? Yes. Is our resurrection one day in Christ a certainty? Yes, it is. But until that day, there remains in us sin that we're going to deal with and appetites that we're going to deal with. And the way Paul describes it is our flesh. All right, that's a fancy term. I mean, it doesn't sound fancy, but it is kind of a fancy term. He's describing two realities. Number one, he's describing your body. Anybody notice your body breaks down? Of course it does. You get tired, you get worn out. When you hurt yourself, uh, you have to get better. You might have to seek treatment. As you get older, older when you hurt yourself, it takes longer to get better. And uh, so all these things remind us that our body is not uh, whole. There's something still broken. But when he uses the flesh, he's also s- describing something of our spiritual nature as well. He's not merely saying our body is bad and our spirit is good. He is saying we have been made righteous, a body and spirit, but there remains in our body and spirit still a struggle with sin. Why do I say this? Because you look like you guys might have been educated in the United States. And you might be Westerners. And Westerners in our education system have been taught this for most of, most of time. Is there are two things about the human. The material body and the immaterial. The spirit. It's just sort of a modern notion in the last several decades that we've decided the immaterial doesn't exist. For most of Western history we said body and spirit. The Bible does not teach that we are two different parts living in the same room. The Bible says we are embodied spirit. So when we talk about our flesh, we're not merely talking about the stuff of our body. We're talking about the reality that our body and spirit still struggles with sin. Plato was the one who really made it popular to say your body is over here and your spirit is over here. And why do we do that? We love that idea that our body and spirit aren't connected fundamentally. We love that because when we sin, we say my body did it. My spirit, though, is still okay. And that's a nice way of skating off. And you say, well, I would never do that. But yes, you do. We're not going to argue today. But what the Bible teaches is our body and spirit are uh, together making us the human person. And when he describes our flesh, we struggle with sin, not just in our body and our physicality, but our sin nature. Who we are is still weighed down by the effects of remaining sin. Look at verses 15 through 18. Let me read them. For I do not understand what my own actions are. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. How does it show up in our life where we're confused over what is good? How does it show up 
in our day-to-day life where we're, we're confused about what is good. And let me summarize it in this way. It, it shows up in our appetites. It shows up in our wants. Um, when you get hungry, your body is telling you you need to eat. I mean, this is not complicated. This isn't science class, right? When you get hungry, your body is telling you you need to eat. Now, if you don't feed your body soon enough, pretty soon it starts sending you this message, which is this. If you don't eat, you will die. Because it's a survival myth. It's a, yeah, you got to eat to survive, right? So if I don't eat, uh, I will die. So I eat and I'm satisfied, right? So now I will never have to eat again because my hunger is satisfied, right? No, I'm going to be, two things are going to happen. Number one, I'm going to be hungry again in a couple of minutes for me. Or... If that much food made me satisfied, a little bit more food certainly will make me even more satisfied. You've all made this decision before. It's not all you can eat for no reason. That means if you don't eat all you can eat, you're actually breaking the rules. And so we eat more and we said, now I'm actually not any more satisfied and I realize that what I've done. And this is how the sinful nature works. It shows up in our appetites and most of our appetites Fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with them. The problem is we make them appetites that must be satisfied and they become a God. So if I'm hungry, I must eat. There's only one rule, I must be satisfied. If I'm seeking human relationship and I don't have it, I will never be satisfied until I have human relationship I find uh, meaningful. That's a lot of weight to put on another person. If I don't have... uh, Human, physical, sexual intimacy. I will never be satisfied. That's a a hunger that must be satisfied. I must have a satisfaction uh, of certainty and security. And the the best way to have certainty and security is to have enough set aside that I know I will never run out. And that's a want. I want more so I never have to worry if there will be enough. I want significance, and so I need to be seen, and I need to have a particular reputation, and that's a hunger, and that's an appetite, and that's a want. And so these things aren't coming from the outside. It's not a a want dealer trying to convince us to do it. It's coming from our flesh, and it's telling us if we don't have what we want, we will die. Or worse, we will live an unsatisfied life, and there is nothing more miserable than that. This is what we tell ourselves. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. I have Philippians 3, 18, 19 on the screen. I'm going to read, begin reading in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. No, we don't want to do that, do we? What does it mean to walk as enemies of the cross of Christ? Verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their, what? Belly, appetite, desire, hunger, for whatever that ache is. That becomes their God, and they will do anything to seek to service that God by consuming whatever that God is calling them to consume. So the result is they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. All the things I just described aren't evil things, but all the things I just described, appetite, human relationship, human sexuality, uh, desire for significance, desire for security, these aren't evil things, but these are earthly things. 
Verse 20, it's not up there. Our citizenship, though, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject all things to Himself. So our citizenship is heaven, and He speaks using the, the future tense. One day He will transform our, our lowly bodies. Has it happened yet? Not yet. One day He will, and we will be like Him, which means what? Our appetites will then be like His appetites. Here we fight with our appetites. There, everything we hunger for will be holy, righteous, and good, and pleasing to God. So how does it show up? We're confused over what's good. Just look at what you want real bad. And these appetites conflict with our desire to walk with the Lord. What we need to recognize is this desire to pursue what we desire most is coming from inside us. It's not an outside pressure. It's the inner person with deep hungers uh, for survival, for pleasure, for meaning that, that we then pursue the appetites of the flesh and the result is we're confused over what's good. All right, go back to Romans 7, verses 19 and 20. Yeah, your appetites are saying, no, I'm not going there. Do it anyway. All right, I'm kidding. All right, here we go. Verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And this is the conflict of every believer. The conflict of every believer is this. We have things, appetites, desires we know are sin. They're not complicated. Nobody needs to convince us of sin. We, we do a lot of mental gymnastics to convince ourselves it's okay. Nobody's getting hurt. Uh, everybody else uh, is doing it. And uh, in the Bible, in some of the uh, areas it talks about, it's sort of outdated. If there was an updated version of it, some of these ridiculous things would be changed. But the fact is, we know at the core of ourselves, if the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, that we have things, some appetites we hold on to that are good. And, and here's the thing. So, are, did I say are good? Wow, okay, that's bad. They aren't good. So here's the thing. Oftentimes, these appetites come up, and, and we seek means to satisfy them. And we feel terrible about it, and we're convicted of it, and all these other things. But here's the thing. Here's how it's worse. Oftentimes, we say no to them. So an opportunity to satisfy an, an inner appetite, a, a lingering desire is in our, in our heart, and we have an opportunity to satisfy it, and we say, you know what? No. No, I, God's way is not my way. So I say no, and I walk away. But then what happens? But even still, there's this, this sense in me and in you, what is wrong with me that I wanted that? What is going on in my heart and mind that that is even an option? And so when Paul is talking about the struggle with the flesh, he's not just talking about being well-behaved. He's talking about an honest reflection about what's going on in our heads. An honest reflection that even when we say no, we have to recognize there is something not right yet. And, and the sooner we come to grips with that, the sooner we're going to be able to experience victory uh, in Christ. What do we do with these desires that are in us? Evil is working in us. Evil is actually being motivated by us. And even when we seem to win and say no to sin, we still feel defeated. What's the solution? Let me give you the solution. I'm going to give you good news and bad news. You ready? 
All right, Galatians 5, I'm going to take your silence as you're ready. Galatians 5, 16 through 18 says this. How do we overcome the flesh, the appetites of our, our souls? But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. How do you say no to the flesh and no longer gratify the desires of our appetites and our flesh? Is we walk by the Spirit. Verse 17 of Galatians 5, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh these are opposed to each other they keep you from doing the things you want to do but if you're led by the spirit you are not under the law so the solution here is to walk by the spirit is to say uh, no to the flesh by the power of the holy spirit and also say yes to where the spirit is leading us so that's the good news is god by his grace gives us the ability to have victory over our flesh by walking by the spirit and now you're saying well how do i walk by the spirit anybody asking that question that's romans 8 you're gonna have to wait that's the bad news romans 8 is walking by the spirit if you're really anxious go ahead and read it but we're going to cover that over the next two or maybe three weeks is what does it look like to walk by the spirit in detail in romans chapter 8 but you're going to have to have to wait on that but what it it the 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 um now i can't think of the word doesn't matter what it means is this is by faith we're going to rest in the power of the spirit instead of seeking to be satisfied uh by the flesh this is dependency on the power of god through prayer through rest repentance uh and confession but the first split thing we have to recognize is we're confused over what is good why being good doesn't always feel good we're confused over what's good because within us there's a fight going on for what ought to be and the question is are we going to listen to and be transformed by the power of the spirit or are we going to listen to and follow the appetites of our flesh okay let's look at verses 21 through 25 why being good doesn't always feel good is because we have to fight to do what's right we have to fight to do right so this is romans 7 21 through 25 and pat read it for us already there was an old TV show, I really enjoyed watching it, and I hesitate to admit it, but whatever. All right, it's called American Gladiator. Remember this show? I don't know if you've seen it. Maybe you're afraid to admit it as well. American Gladiator, basically the, the idea is you've got these contestants, and they've got to go through sort of a course of some kind. It depends on the, the, uh, the event that's being going. They might have to cross over a chasm on some ropes. They might have to climb up a mountain that's made out of foamy stuff now the thing with with american gladiator that's uh, different than american ninja warrior i know when you came to church today you're like man i hope, really hope we address this long-standing conflict in my heart between american gladiator and american ninja warrior well here we go so american gladiator are these short like one-time little uh, courses and you cross them and the courses themselves though are relatively simple if you're uh, you know physically fit whereas american ninja warrior the course itself is nearly impossible so American Gladiator should be pretty simple, right? You just cross the little gap on the ropes. No, what's the difference with that one? There's a guy, the American Gladiator. He has used substances, certainly from Whole Foods, to make his physical mass larger than it should be. His job is, if you're crossing hand-to-hand -hand on ropes, to jump on your back and shake you off the ropes. So the job with American Gladiator is you've got this guy who's opposed to you. I mean, that, it's not that hard to climb up a foam mountain. It is pretty hard if there's a 300-pound guy with 0% body fat coming at you, and he's taking you down. Well, this is the thing. It might say, you know, walking with the Lord, I read the Bible, it's not, it's not like it's complicated. It's not like it's, it's 
It's fairly straightforward what the Bible calls for. Why is it so hard? Because within us, there's a war going on. And the war is within us. Look at verse 23. I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law of flesh. What's the law of flesh? I must have what I want. If I don't have what I want, I will never be happy. I will never be satisfied. I will never matter. I must have what I want. And it's waging war with the recognition in my mind that God's ways are good. And it is a war that's going on. Look at verse 21 again. I find it to be a law that, I want, that when I want to do right, what, what's right. This is a genuine desire of the heart. I want to do what's right here. Evil lies close at hand. It's lurking. The presence of evil is in us because we're not raised from the dead yet. And it opposes us, especially when we decide to go down the road of righteousness. There is no tired, as tired, as the tired you feel when you decide to get up 10 minutes early to read your Bible. There is tired. Now, parents with new babies are going to argue with that. That's fine. But you get my point. There is no tired. There is, and, and then you get up 10 minutes early. You can barely stay awake. You crack your Bible open, and it's two chapters of names you can't pronounce. There's an opposition to it. We sit down to pray. We say, you know, I need to pray for my friends. I need to pray for my family, my church, my city, my country. And we sit down to pray. 20 minutes goes by, and we have solved a lot of problems in our head, but we haven't prayed. We've had a lot of arguments with our spouse and won those arguments in our head, but we haven't prayed. Because there is no op- the opposition to prayer is not coming from out here and over there. It's when we sit down to pray, there is something in us that tells us, this is a waste of my time. It doesn't matter. And there's a war against us. And this lurking presence of evil is there as soon as we start to go out and confront the realities where we say, you know what, this is what walking by the Spirit looks like. We don't know war until we say, let's go there. In World War I, I wasn't there. Some of you might have been, I don't know. There was a kind of warfare. It was called trench warfare, right? Could you imagine a commanding officer walking through the trenches one day and there's an infantry man there standing there and he goes, CEO, I got an idea. You know, I got an idea how this would be a lot easier. And the guy, oh, tell me, what is it? If the other guys would stop shooting at us, this would be a We wouldn't need to dig these trenches. We could just walk over there. If we could somehow get them to stop shooting at us, there would no longer be a problem. This is how many of us are living our Christian life. We think that once we got saved, there's no enemies. Or we think the enemy is out there. We think if our country would finally return to its roots. I'm going to annoy some people. You ready? I could finally walk with Jesus. The war you're fighting for your Christian life in the spirit is not out there. It is in your heart. If this country And by God's grace, I pray it does. If this country changed its direction, fantastic. That will not help your spiritual life. The war in you will be unchanged. As soon as you say, I'm going to walk by the Spirit, the bullets will start flying over your head. And the one shooting is you. Saying, that's not worth your time. That won't pay off. If you don't have this, you'll never be happy. 
And this is the lurking presence of evil in us. And many of us have gone to walk with the Lord and encountered significant obstacles even in our own hearts. And for some reason, we were surprised by it. I thought when we followed Jesus, it was just skipping through the tulips. And that when he said, take up my, your cross and follow me, he was joking. I thought he meant a necklace. When he said, take up your cross and follow me, that's a way of saying, you can't carry your appetites and my cross. And to carry a cross is to recognize, to say no to my very own appetites is a form of suffering. Verse 22, Romans 7, for I delight in the love of God, but in my inner being, verse 23, I see my members, another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Romans 12.2 says this. We'll get there, I think, next fall, actually. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Uh, this verse is mind-blowing. This verse messes up all of your plans on how to be a good little Christian. Here's what it says. Don't be conformed to the world. Okay, we got that. Don't do the naughty stuff. No, that's not what it says. What does it say? Be transformed with the renewing of your mind. See, many of us have been taught or we have somehow decided that to be a good Christian is to learn to say no to what I want forever. Really, really, really good. The plan of being a believer is not to merely say no to my appetites. It is that, but it's more than that. The plan of following Christ is to have my appetites changed, be transformed by the renewing of my mind, that the things today, my, my hunger for things that aren't the best would be changed to be a hunger for the things that are God's ways. Well, what are those things? Well, certainly there's just a long list of to-dos and to-don'ts, right? No. There is a list of those things, but there's more than that. Look how he ends this. That we would have our minds renewed, and by testing, you would discern what God's will is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If God just simply wanted you to keep your nose clean and follow the Ten Commandments or whatever list you want to come up with, we wouldn't need to be discerning. Discernment means... In a sea of options, there are many good options, but in those sea of options, there are options that are God's perfect will, and I want to pursue those in spite of my own appetites. How do we do that? We have to have our mind transformed. Back in the Psalms, I can't remember which one, you can Google it. The Psalm that says, do not be like a horse that needs to be led by the bit and bridle. God is looking for followers that don't need to be... No, don't do that. Okay, yes, do that. Okay, don't do that. No, no, no. Okay, yes, do that. Do that more. But do it better. Oh, my lands. Right? This is what we think the Christian life is. What is the Christian life? The mind of Christ so overwhelming me that I don't need God to sit there and tell me what to do and not to do because I do Christ's things having been transformed. Well, how do I do that? It's a process, isn't it? Over time, the renewing of our minds so we know what's good. We know what's acceptable. We know what's perfect. All right, moving on. We've got to get going. Romans 7.23. Did we read it already? I'm going to read it again. 
I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Here's the thing. It's time for honesty about your own Christian walk. The fact is we need to recognize that our appetites, our yearnings, our hopes of the things we hunger for wage war against the things of Christ that we desire. The reason we need to just say that is because you can't fight it if you aren't willing to admit it. If you can't, with the Apostle Paul, say there are still a bunch of hungers and appetites in my life, there are a lot of passions in my life that are contrary to the Spirit of God, if we can't admit that, we're never going to go to war. We're just going to continue to feed the flesh. What's the proper response when we recognize we are still filled with remaining sin that needs to be worked out? Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Does that sound depressing? You realize that's the most hopeful prayer there is? You realize this is the person who finally is going to engage in the power of God? Because he said, wait a minute, I'm toast. I can't do it. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25 says. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who is it? It's Jesus. Why does that matter? Israel needed a hero. They had a guy that was running up against him. His name was Goliath. Maybe you've heard of him. And so they needed a hero to save them from their monster, their, their giant they couldn't handle. Their hero was David. He saved them. While they were cowering in their caves, hiding in bushes, he just handled it. Our hero is the son of David, Jesus, the Messiah. God in the flesh who lived his life perfect, died on the cross to pay for our sin, and is risen from the dead so that those who put their faith in him have their sins forgiven and will live forever uh, with him. So he is our hero. He has come to rescue us. So why aren't we spending most of our time saying, Lord, you just handled this? Oh, wretched man that I am. I need a hero. I don't need to be a hero. And that is the proper posture of the Christian life. Over and over and over again, reminding myself that I'm not the hero of my Christian life. Jesus is. If I wake up every morning and recognize that I still need his grace today, that's a place to be. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You need the gospel to get saved. The good news is Jesus saves sinners. And Seth touched on that this morning. You also need the gospel to overcome sin as a Christian. The gospel isn't just for your conversion. Good news, Jesus saves sinners like us Christians. He allows us by his grace and the power of his spirit to overcome the sin that remains. And we need the good news to recognize that one day we will be glorified. We get to go to heaven with him. Do we get to go to heaven because we deserve it? Okay, now I'm going to mess with you. You ready? There's very little time I'm going to do it anyway. Do you get to go to heaven because you got saved? Kind of. Let me. Do you get to go to heaven because you lived a good Christian life? Absolutely not. Because you're not that good at that. Good at it. That's rude. Just being. I just read Romans seven. Why do we get to go to heaven? Because Jesus said we get to. Jesus has saved us. Jesus is saving us over our current remaining sin. Jesus will save us. We get to go to heaven because he said, I will make sure you get there. We don't deserve it any more now than we did the day we got saved. 
We only get it because Jesus is that kind of hero. Three things, and then we'll close. You're welcome. First thing, you do yourself a disservice by minimizing or pretending or putting out a front about your remaining sin. You do yourself a disservice spiritually by pretending you're not struggling with the harsh realities of remaining sin. Why do you do yourself a disservice? Or why is it a disservice? It's this reason. Grace is experienced to the degree that we recognize we need it. Now, God, grace is sufficient, but as long as I think I only need a little grace, I will only experience. Now, Jesus' grace is being poured out on us, but my experience of it will be limited by the degree that I'm willing to admit I need it. The way to experience the power of God's grace is to finally own it. I need a bunch of it. I need God's grace again this morning. Grace is found most profound when sin is most clearly owned and given and said, this is what I'm dealing with. This is the realities of my life. Jesus, do you still accept me? And what's the answer? Yeah. Because I died on the cross for that. And I stand at the right hand of the Father for that. And by my power of my spirit, I'm going to show you what it looks like to walk away from that. But I still receive you. But as long as our sins are polite, we will, receive, we will experience polite grace. The best way, the most profound way, the most in real time way to experience the grace of Christ is to know somebody who is filled with the grace of Christ, tell them your sin, and see if they still accept you. Well, that sounds scary, doesn't it? James says it this way, confess your sins to one another. Why? He wants us to know what it feels like in relationship for people to accept us graciously, even though we don't deserve it. And the only place that can happen is in the body of Christ. To know one or two people that you can be yourself with, and they will give you the grace of Christ. Second thing, shame is a tool of the enemy to get you to give up. Shame is this, I'm a, I do things that I shouldn't, I think things that I shouldn't, and nobody else thinks like I do. Shame and the enemy will try to convince you you're the only one. Shame and the enemy will try to convince you the, you're the worst. Shame and the enemy will convince you if everybody knew what was going on in your, in your life, they would reject you. Shame and guilt is the tool of the enemy to get you to give up. We're all in this. We're all in We all have fights. We all have appetites. We all have remaining sins. Some of them we're fighting against and we all have appetites we're not even fighting against yet. We need to live in the grace of Christ that it is finished for us in order to see victory in, in our walk with the Holy Spirit. Shame and guilt will not get you to get over sin. In fact, it makes it worse. Finally this, Jesus is our hero. He saves us. Over the course of our life as Christians, he's going to make us more like himself. He's also our hero to raise us from the dead one day. He is our hero. And one of the ways of getting at uh, our appetites is this. They say, what am I really trusting in for my hero? Is it my job? Is it my money? Is it human relationship? Is, is it sexual intimacy? Is it food? Is it alcohol? Is it drugs? Is it leisure? Is it having a good time? What is it? What do I say is going to save me and make me feel okay? Jesus is our hero. Here's our job. We're going to cover this more in Romans chapter 8. Number one, trust Jesus. Repent. Walk with him. Confess. Trust Jesus some more. Walk with him a little more. Repent some more. 
pray, you're going to have to repent some more. Walk with him a little more. Fail real bad. Repent. Wait, this doesn't sound fun. That sounds like a war to me. The walk of the Christian life is repentance and faith every day. Trusting that the gospel is as true today as it was the day I believed. Pray, love others, in humility accept relational grace in the church community.